Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, I'm here with Rebecca Caden of Now USV. Welcome to the Village Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So while we still have you in San Francisco yes. uh, before you leave, USV, what inspired you to join such an amazing firm? <laughs> I'm sort of answering my own question, <laughs> but what sort of, how did you sort of think about it? Yeah. Well, why there? So I joined um, this fall. I had gotten to know my partners there over the last year-ish and was excited by how they think. It's a very idea and thesis-driven firm. And are you an idea and thesis-driven investor? You know, I wouldn't have necessarily described right. myself as that before, but I love the concept of that. Yeah. And the more I learned about it, this idea of not reacting to a market, but really thinking about where we think things are going, how an ecosystem is changing, make some bets on what the future look like, and know that you're going to be wrong a lot of the time, but when you're right, it's really exciting yep. and there's a lot of potential there. And I like the the kind of definition and structure a thesis gives you as well. Yep. And this idea that you can define your universe by what you're interested in and by how you put pieces together and you can go through a learning process of kind of figuring out what that thesis is. And I think we do that at USV on this kind of firm level when we define our thesis. We're actually in a process right now of doing a USV thesis 3.0. There's been a yep. 1.0 and a 2.0. And when you look at the 1.0, it's all about network effects. Mm -hmm. And that really defines kind of the first Twitter. iteration. Yeah. yeah, Twitter, Tumblr, Etsy, mm -hmm. um, really exciting companies. And then you look at the USB thesis 2.0, and it's really, it's not a different thesis. It's an extension of, of that original thesis. And so it's, what does that allow for? And it also allows for vertical networks. And right. that kind of launched our portfolio in fintech and health tech. It allows for the infrastructure that provides for the networks. And right. so there you get, you know, Twilio and MongoDB. Yep. And then it, it really fuels a decentralization thesis, which lead, led to a lot of the work on the blockchain. And so as I was talking to them, I really liked this idea of a thesis and and how, what kind of structure that gave to this role yeah. and to our team. And we talked a lot about how my experience with consumer fits into that. And this idea of what do these networks allow for on the consumer side? What are the products and services that now can be built on top of these networks and can reach huge scale because of the network infrastructure? And I was really excited by that. But mostly I think, you know, venture is a is capital and people right. and capital is a commodity. So mm -hmm. it's really just about the people that you're in this with yeah. and being with partners who I admire and really inspire me, which I got to do at Mavron and I'm doing at USV is exciting. And then there's a New York piece, which excites totally. me. And is, is what you described, is that USV 3.0 or what, what's? No, that's USV 2.0. Okay. So what's? 3.0 uh, on the come. It's in progress. Yeah. I won't spoil it, but, but, and I say that because we don't, we're really working right. on it, and it's it something we take seriously as a firm. And then each of us, I think, from there have things that we're interested in and are really encouraged to yep. define our own thesis. And I, so I like that. And um, New York as an ecosystem excites me. It's my hometown. And so going back there was um, right. appealing to me. Too. Uh, and USV is, you know, we're just talking about Benchmark, is sort of like Benchmark in that they could have recruited perhaps anyone, any investor in the world. How do you, like, what do you, th without being modest here, what do you think they... <laughs> 
saw in you. It said, out of I don't anybody. know that they could have recruited anyone in the world, and this is how it got to me. You know, I think a lot of partnerships are these crazy things yeah. where it's this chemistry where you're, you know, getting to know Albert and Andy and Fred and John and Brad over a course of a year, like, I feel like I went on, you know, five first dates and then, you know, 50 second and third and eighth dates, you know, because you really are figuring out if a compatibility for the long term, you know, these partnerships aren't short term, you want to really be in it together. And that doesn't mean uh, you think the same, but it really means the way you think are going to be compatible in terms of debates and decision-making. And I loved how debate was part of this firm, that the goal was not to find people who all thought the same and had similar mindsets. It was really, and they were very explicit, people with different focus, people with different mindsets who are going to, who just aren't going to be scared to get in it. And and we do, um, but there's such a mutual respect to that, that I think it makes it work. And that was something that was really important to me. And I, I think that's less so I think that's what they were looking for too. Right. And that's a really specific alchemy that has to come together, I think. Yeah. You talk about partnerships. I am amazed at talking to GPs at other firms, just how much, when, you, when you're a co-founder of a company, you know, you have one co-founder, two co-founders, and you typically have a CEO. Yeah. At partnerships, it's, and if it doesn't work out, you know, 18 months, you just sort of part ways. But yeah. partnerships are so fragile and they're so long and people just don't like each other sometimes. And you have a lot yeah. of partners. And I loved that. I, what I loved about USB as I got to know the team was right. my partners really like each other. Yeah. But even more than that, it was clear that they just have huge respect for each other. Right. Anytime I'd talk to one individually, they would say, I would ask them a question and they would answer it and they'd be like, but you should talk to right. Albert because he knows so much about that. Or you should talk yeah. to John because he'll have a really great perspective there. And that happened over and over. And that mutual respect, I think, is the foundation of good decision-making here. How did you have to change as an investor in terms of your approach, in terms of how you invest, in terms of how you think about VC and startups? So I think that there's a couple of pieces of that. One is kind of what am I looking at focus-wise? You know, I spent five-ish years at Maveron focused 100% on consumer and Maveron's world-class at consumer. And I I loved that focus. And I fell in love with investing in direct-to-consumer brands and the idea that product and technology can create leverage and scale. And then consumer brand creates stickiness and emotion that fortifies something over time and makes customers fall in love with it. And I really love this idea that consumers don't fall in love with technology. They fall in love with what technology allows them to do, and that understanding that distinction. And so I'm taking that with me. I think from a sector perspective, I'm still very excited about consumer, looking a lot at categories within it. But you also absorb what the people around you care about and what they focus on. And I've loved that part of working with this team. And so I think, you know, USV looks at network effects in a really specific way. And they look at network effects as a key leverage of a venture scale business, as the ability to invest in something early and then have that business kind of do the work for you, right? Grow upon itself. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it's Twitter. It can be a consumer transactional business. It can be a commerce platform. It can be a, you know, a health tech vertical like NERCs. It can be a fintech company like Lending Club, but there's something about it that has a core network effect that creates leverage and scale. And I think I've now internalized that probably in a different way. And that's kind of adjusted my view. And I think similarly, we look at differentiation very, very carefully in modes. Um, What cannot be copied? Um, And what 
is that technology? Is that a network? Is it a community? Is it a product? And what role does that play? And I, I've enjoyed understanding how my partners think about right. that. So let's let's talk about NERC specifically and then sure. use that as a segue to talk consumer health broadly. Yeah. So I invest in NERCs as well. Cool. Uh, for those who don't know, prescribe and deliver birth control on demand and then other things uh, as well upcoming. How do you I – mean, there's a lot of people sort of – a lot of companies in that general – Tackling yeah. yes. So how do you, how do you think about – modes and differentiator as it relates to NERCs. And then I'm curious, broadly, how are you looking at consumer health? Yeah. So I think what excites... So NERCs was a, a company that USV invested in, led the seed round. So it predated yep. me getting to the firm. My partner, Andy, led it there. But what I love about NERCs is I think that they're creating a community of customers who believe that they can get something on this platform that they don't have access to otherwise. I think convenience is a part of it. They're prescribing birth control over a mobile app. But access is actually a really valued part of it, that a lot of the women on the platform are don't feel comfortable where they live, either asking for birth control, they're not near a doctor, it's hard for them to get it. And access creates a stickiness here that I think is really powerful mm -hmm. and also makes them tell their friends. Mm -hmm. um, and you create a virality that way, which I think is really cool. And I think in general, we believe that consumers are taking more responsibility for their health and wellness and willing to put their dollars against that in a new way. And that technology can create access, convenience, value, and pricing that didn't exist in that sector before. And so we're excited with things that are doing that. Specifically, what we then saw in NERCs was scaling through organic growth, which I just think is extremely difficult to do in this sector. Mm -hmm. And that um, their press and their brand and their community was really doing the work for them. And so their cost per customer was extremely, extremely low. And I think you know, you can always make an argument that these customers are really sticky. It's a prescription product. They stay with you for a long time. So sure, you can pay for them up front, but you get a lot more leverage on the business when you don't have to yeah. pay for them up front. And it's really one of the few teams in this consumer health sector that I've seen do that extremely effectively. How would you sort of describe your thesis in, in consumer health in terms of where you're looking, where you're excited about, and maybe where you think it's too hard or where you're not excited about? Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I'm, I'm curious of yours too yeah, because sure. you're spending a lot of time there too, and, and I'm, this is real time, you know, fleshing this out. But what I love about this sector is a couple of different things. I think in general, I like tracking what are the shifts in where consumers are putting their dollars. Where did we put them five years ago? That has really changed from where we're putting them today. And I think two things are happening in what I'll call a health and wellness sector. And I like to think about it. Esther Dyson, who's an angel yeah. I really admire, who's done a lot in this sector, one time described it as um, health, not healthcare. Right. And that healthcare is like the regulated, really gritty, kind of challenging part of this industry. And I think big changes are going to be made there. And we're seeing companies do it. Yeah. It hasn't been where I've focused. But I think there's this health and wellness category, which is something that we didn't pay that much attention to as consumers before. Right. And what you're seeing is this shift in psychology, in brand, and in the desire to take responsibility for that and to put your dollars against it, which creates opportunities in these verticals to launch new brands. Mm -hmm. um, because once consumers want to put their dollars against this, they look around and they don't have very many places to go. Right. Um, and so something like NERC, something like modern fertility and the fertility space are creating options where um, there's not only the products that are convenient and accessible and affordable, but there's also the brands that become the go-tos for consumers who are looking for things in those categories. Um, so that really excites me in consumer health in general. And then I think the lack of transparency in the health 
and wellness system yep. as a whole in terms of access to care, pricing, the role of mass insurance players mm-hmm. in a space that have obscured a lot of facts for consumers we're seeing a shift in. You know, Bill Gurley has written a lot about this recently and I really love reading that work because it resonates. This is a mass consumer problem that technology can solve. Technology can give us access to information and to services that we had to go through third parties for before that obscured important data. And so that kind of general theme is something I'm excited to continue to look around. Yeah. We've also been excited about building companies that are organizing, you know, against like specific disease or specific category where there hasn't been a noticeable brand player yet. So one example is uh, we just invested in a company called Brightside, which is trying to be NERCs, but for antidepressants. Right now, if you think about depression, there isn't you a know, go-to. dominant brand yeah. that you think about. And there are a few different ways to tackle it. That's one example. Another one is um, we did Motion Clinical, which is trying to be end-to-end service, almost like one medical for people with musculoskeletal conditions, all body pains, which is the number one you know, spend for, for employers. And there yeah. isn't really a, a dominant brand in that category. Yeah. I mean, you think of these critical moments, right? You learn something about yourself and you turn somewhere. Oftentimes right now it's either a medical provider, your doctor, but that's a multi-step process and there's a lot of pain around that process, particularly in a lot of places in the country, or it's Google. And yep. Google is great in lots of different ways, but falls short in a lot of things in the healthcare vertical, I think. For me, a prime example here is modern fertility. Right. You know, I've, I've had this thesis that fertility is this space that's a very consumer thing. For many women, you go from trying really hard not to get pregnant to wanting to get pregnant in a pretty short period of time. And when you make that change, they literally had nowhere to turn. Right. So they go to Google. And when you go to Google, <laughs> you get many message boards that are pretty scary. And so you look at that and you say, if you can be a dominant consumer brand here, not only can you sell me products and services right, that are necessary for me on the journey that I'm about to take, but you can also create a peace of mind that's going to make you matter to me. And I love those kind of brands that aren't only functional, but they're emotional and they really resonate for a consumer and they create a peace of mind that I didn't have before. Um, And I think there's a lot of room for that in health and wellness, particularly on a wellness side as well, where the whole world of mental health, acupuncture, chiropractic, all of that has been pretty fragmented, not that institutionalized, not a lot of brand built around it. And I'm excited to see brands emerge that are building interesting things in that world too. Have you ever done anything in mental health? I've we've been looking looked, for a long time. Yeah, we've looked quite a bit. The mental health chatbots, like the, you know, there's talk space is the only one that's yeah, been taken off. I think it's very tricky. And I, I think it's one I'm, I'm enjoying spending time learning about because the clinical side matters quite a bit in it as well in terms of efficacy. I think for some of these solutions... Technology is going to be a piece of it, but it may be an online offline solution. So I'm excited to see more there. Let's transition a bit to fintech. You were mentioning yeah. that recently, I think, I believe it's something in stealth, but you've been sort of spending a lot of time there. Where are you looking right now and where are you not looking? Sure. Fintech is a good transition here because I actually think some of the things that make the category interesting to me on the consumer side are similar to the health vertical, right? Where I think it's a category marked by brands that aren't only old, but they're marked for a lot of consumers by fear, distrust, confusion. And when when you see those brands that have been around a long time, are clunky, have a hard time innovating, and also are marked by those emotional tendencies, I think you have huge opportunity to build new brand that can create peace of mind, alignment, transparency, and really get me in that way. 
I also think there's a lot of opportunity in fintech, and this is something that USV has been spending quite a lot of time in, to create products for a mass market. Banks have traditionally been built around business models that are targeted to the top of the pyramid because they're AUM businesses generally, where you make money on your richest customers. And that's a model of a bank, and that's worked well for them. But I love this idea that technology can not only create access for customers at different places in a pyramid, but also make those customers valuable enough to be worth really building for. And that can happen here because there's a lot of those customers. And if you build products and services where you get leverage on them because you don't have huge retail bank chains and so much overhead of the traditional institutions here, you can really build special things, I think, on that customer base. And so I'm excited about that category. What are examples of use cases or products or companies that are doing things for that? I mean, Acorns. There's one in New York called Stash. This idea of, of making savings easy and accessible and that at scale, that's really actually an effective um, business model. Even a Robinhood right. um, opening up n- investing products to a larger audience who isn't yeah. paying for things. Have you done anything in insurance? Or have you I've looked, looked a lot in insurance. USB did Cover Wallet, which is a play in insurance. On the consumer side, I've actually spent quite a lot of time in the last 36 months looking at insurance. And here's, I'd be curious of your thoughts. Here's my rub on insurance. Getting an insurance company off the ground is hard, right? Because it's regulated and you have to build the technology, you have to go through the regulation, and that's hard. And it takes time and it takes capital. The problem is it's doable. So it's hard, but you can do it. And so you get to this point where you're going to raise this big round and what you've kind of proven is you can do something that's hard, but it's doable. And so you haven't created a lot of moats around you that are, I think, sustainable and differentiated over time. So I'm waiting to understand in some of these verticalized insurance plays, what's going to create a lot of differentiation and moats to the business. The things that have excited me here, Navron, we did a seed investment in a company called Cover. They've done a fantastic job. I think Karn, who's the CEO, is awesome. And they've done a fantastic job on the acquisition side. Every time I've diligenced insurance with traditional industry players who are likely big M&A players here, and I think fintech is funny that way, where the people disrupting the traditional players often wind up having to interface with those players and often sell to them. And I think in insurance, they always say, the best ones are going to be able to acquire customers in a differentiated way. Right. And so I'm looking for that in insurance. Yeah. How about you? I, I did cover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing that I've I've touched, and it was mostly a founder bet. Yeah, I had known Karn yeah. from his previous yeah. company that he had sold to Shopify. Yeah. I always thought he, was, he and Natalie are stars. I've done anything in wealth management, like Wealthfront or... We, um, USV, recently made a bet that I'm very excited about, but it's not yet announced... Right. In a space that involves wealth management for a massa. It's interesting when you join a new firm, are you spending most of your time just like, you know, inhaling the history of all of its companies? Or are you it's spending so your time? crazy because, you know, when you're at a firm for five years, you know a portfolio yeah. inside out. You know all the nuances, right. you know all the founders, you know all the like untold things. You just know the history. And you go to a new place and um, USP has 70 plus portfolio companies. And they didn't know them. So that's actually really been fun because it's really, it's expanded the set of data points that I have to work off of yeah. as well. And the the knowledge that I have, and I feel really lucky to now have kind of this broader base of, of go-tos, both in terms of founders to talk to and, and 
bounce ideas off of and kind of data points and what works and what doesn't work. But yeah, I've been spending a fair yeah. amount of time absorbing it. And also I'm excited to do new things and to contribute to that portfolio. So it's, it's, um, it's given me a lot of time to meet awesome entrepreneurs building new stuff. Totally. And you know, one thing among other things you've been focused on while well, Navron and USB is, is consumer brands and yes. you know, as it relates to you know, commerce as one, you transactional commerce. How, how do you think, your thesis has evolved over the years. Yeah. I sort of yeah. And I it. think this is actually independent of firms. I think the Mavron partners are probably best in class at right. thinking in this space. And um, I think I'm relatively aligned there. I think commerce and consumer brands are at this interesting moment. I think there has never been a better time to build a brand. I think consumers are hungry for stories and brands that resonate with who they are and feel like they're designed for them. And the channels are extremely rich to find those consumers, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much data about me out there now that you can tell me a story and show me a brand that really feels personalized for me. And I've never been more eager to leave the institutional brands of the past. There was really a time where consumers wanted to go to the tried and true. Right. That was a behavioral mindset that was prevalent. And there's been a real shift in that. Millennials and Gen Z want to strike out on their own. They want the new. And that's a huge opportunity for brands. And we see that. At the same time, there's a bunch of, I think, market effects happening here that make it a difficult time to build brands. The Amazon effect is right. really real. I was going to ask, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really striking to me that they owned more than 50% of consumer spend online last year. Wow. So where can you build a business, if at all? So I've been thinking a lot about this, as I'm sure every investor in the planet has. Yeah. Um, but so here's how I look at that. Originally, I would have said Amazon, you know, you can't beat them in convenience right. and can't beat them in logistics. You then can't beat them in value. Then you couldn't really beat them in discovery and assortment. But you could beat them in kind of product and brand. I think that's starting to come into question because... What you've learned in the last kind of 18 months is their ability to spin up, test, and scale private label brands is extremely powerful. Yeah. And do I think that unique brands that tell their own stories and get out there, there's still a place for in the world? Yes. But it turns out scale may be a more powerful thing than that. Right. And so I worry in that we wind up in an ecosystem where we have Amazon. And then we have many different fragmented, smaller niche brands. So how do you kind of compete in that ecosystem because at the same time channels are getting more crowded and more expensive than ever right and so we're seeing while there's a long tail of channels that didn't exist five years ago those channels get expensive very quickly they don't scale that well in a cost-effective way and so you have to do one of two things you either have to be able to catch organic fever in yep. a different kind of way well i would say one of three things Catch organic fever in a different kind of way. Build a product that people just love to talk about. My best example here on the last 18 months is Allbirds. Mm -hmm. We led the Allbirds Series yeah. A wow. in uh, at Maveron mm, almost two years ago. Yep. They were able to build a product that delivered on its promise, that filled a need at a specific time um, where we, you know, what they knew was comfort is always what one and choose and got people to talk about it. Right. I don't know that there's that much science to that. It's a lot of magic. Right. I wish it wasn't for me, Yeah. but I really believe that. I think they built a powerful brand, and I think that's credit to the entrepreneurs, to a moment in time, to lots of things. There's a second thing that I point to, which is there are very specific moments, and I wish there were more of these, where I think there's true arbitrage in markets. We participated in a seed at Maveron um, in a company called Dia & Co., plus size um, business. Mm -hmm. Dia launched at a moment in time where 15% of retail 
was targeted at a plus size audience, and 65 to 70% of American women fit the plus size market. Right. I can't think of another arbitrage yeah. opportunity like that in commerce, like truly serving a market. When I saw this company and, I t- and Nadia is an incredible, incredible CEO. I mean, this, these businesses are operationally complex and logistically right. heavy and she's, you have to then deliver on the promise you're making, which she does. But the wind was at her back because she had a customer that was scrolling through Instagram for years asking to be served a product she could buy and not being shown it. So what happens when you show her the product? She not only buys it, she tells her friends about it. That's magic to a commerce business. So second bucket, you find this arbitrage opportunity in commerce. I just don't know of other ones. If you're a founder that does, I would love to talk to you. I just think they're really rare. So this third bucket is where I'm spending the most time. And what I this is where I think about like who's playing a different game. I just think if you're building a product or you're building a platform that looks like what is out there, it's really challenging right now. So how do you just play a totally different game? And a category that I'm very excited here is the thing that I don't think Amazon has done is conquer entertainment and fun. Uh, it's extremely functional. And yet we love to be entertained. We love fun. And we know that when we feel engaged and we feel entertained, we're way more likely to convert. And so what are, is, it, is Hooked an example of that? Or like what are examples of companies? Is... I think Hush in LA right. is an example of that. I think Wish is kind of mm-hmm. an example of that. Yeah. Now I'm looking for ones also that I feel like really value the product that they're yeah. selling as well. But I'm interested in how live streaming interfaces yeah. with commerce. What looks like entertainment, what looks like TV, but actually is getting me to buy. And it's just in a total, like it's serving a different place in my life than Amazon right. would serve. And so I'm trying to spend as much time you with guys early did, you, founders. You did Periscope. You, yeah. Uh, USB is on you now. Yeah, you exactly. And so I don't know that I've, you know, got the magic ticket there yet, but right. that's a category that I'm excited about. Cool. Rebecca, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank this you is, for having me. This um, is so for fun. entrepreneurs who want to, you know, reach out to USV or know what's the best way to, you know, send their yeah. um, info. Is it on Twitter? Is it, yeah. what's the best way to get Rebecca at USV.com um, is my email and um, Rebecca K 46 on Twitter. Very, very findable on the internet. Awesome. So, well, thank you. Rebecca. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank you. Cool.